So my right shoulder should be getting in yeah. front of that right foot. And if I can't do that, then that is when I am going to retract my shoulder blades to go forward. So now I have these really choppy, <laughs> yeah. like robotic type of running versus you know, coming across my body with my arm. So if I cannot internally rotate my shoulders, I am not going to be able to get that forward momentum using my torso to be able to manage the forces, the colliding forces coming from the ground. That was Alex Effer, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, simplyfaster.com. There's two items I'd like to talk to you about today that you can find in Simply Faster's online store. Whether you're a coach or an athlete, these are both things that you'll find highly useful as tools in your training toolbox. The first is blood flow restriction training methods. And after hearing about blood flow restriction training for years now, as well as the results that athletes are getting with it, especially in, for example, lactate sports like swimming, 100 meter freestyle, and not only hearing of that, but also seeing how much some swimmers had liked that type of training method, I knew I had to start trying it out myself. So I've been utilizing the airbands. I really enjoy it, both the feeling while I'm actually training with them, as well as seeing the visual result of spending time training with the methods and then the strength result. They've been a really cool training tool, and I would definitely recommend checking into airbands. Simplyfaster.com also has the strong brand blood flow restriction. The second item is the VMAX Pro. And this is a new option for velocity-based training, barbell tracking. It provides valuable load-based data, including speed in all phases of a lift, and it delivers key metrics such as power, velocity, distance, as well as duration of effort. The VMAX Pro system measures any lift you can think of. It's portable, durable, and intuitive. You can check out these two items and much more at our sponsor, simplyfaster.com's online store. Let's get on to the show. Welcome to another episode of the show. Thanks for being here. Today's episode brings back Alex Effer. Alex is the owner of Resilient Training. He has extensive experience in the strength and conditioning, exercise physiology, rehabilitation, as well as biomechanical realms of human movement. Alex was recently on the show talking about mechanics or the mechanics of early to mid to late stance and gait and the implications of that or how we can match those things in the weight room, in the gym. How can we design early stance exercises or early stance emphasis exercises, mid stance emphasis, late stance emphasis? How can we better connect what we see in locomotion to what we see in a gym-based setting? The way that Alex sees human movement, biomechanics, things in the gym, it always just spurs so many connections in my own head that helps me better see the whole process of athletic development. On today's show, the topics will progress in a bit of a trend of expansion to compression, meaning we're going to start with more of the aerobic, the restorative, the expansive end of things, and we'll be speaking about aerobic restoration, some elements or modes of aerobic training, such as the elliptical that can be leveraged to help restore movement options to help athletes better recover from heavy compressive workouts. We'll be then getting into squatting dynamics. You could say that is the mid-stance portion of the show. So squatting dynamics helping or how to help athletes achieve a better knee bending strategy. We'll be talking about tibial internal rotation and how to improve that squatting modes and variations that can help improve that loading phase of the body. And then we'll be getting into the more compressive, if you will, element of the show, 
getting into what everyone loves, which is sprinting dynamics. We'll be talking about the role of the upper body in sprinting, really not just on like the external actions of the arm, but on what is happening from an internal rotation perspective of the shoulder itself and how that shoulder internal rotation can help match the forces that are coming up from the ground to help us propel forward and also exercises in the gym that can help improve internal rotation and just the internal and external rotation dynamics of the upper body that can help us trend towards different outcomes if we're looking at sprinting and jumping. Alex will also get into hip extension dynamics, how to better train that in the gym to get a more quality hip extension using the glutes more so than a back compression strategy. We'll be talking hill sprinting and a lot more in this really deep diving podcast. If you want to see just how much I took out of it, head to the show notes on Just Fly Sports. You can see some videos that will give you a visual highlight of some things we're talking about, some sprint mechanics we talk about, and then all the quotes that I put together, all the things I took from this show. I always enjoy talking to Alex. So let's get to it. Episode 314 with Alex Zephyr. Alex, it's great to have you back, man. All right. So in doing your mentorship, I found uh, something very interesting that uh, you said that got me to reconsider a few things, at least philosophically. And that was your thoughts on the Theragun. And I will, yeah. I will preface this with my, you know, like I've had Austin Yokoman talking about how like a lot of college strength coaches are sometimes valued by having these like cool toys or neat toys. And then Tommy John with like his thoughts on passive treatments and relying on passive treatments. I'll preface it with that. But I did think what you said with the Theragun was very cool. So as the first question, tell me your thoughts on the Theragun. Yeah, and no, I think this is a, as you said, it's a bit of a polarizing topic because you have people who think they're useless. And to be honest, like when I first saw Theragun being used, I thought it was pretty useless. I thought it was just another foam roller, which again, I used to think was useless, but I don't anymore. With everything, I always try to find a reason or, or yeah, a reason of why these things could be useful. And so the way that I look at it is that when we're trying to create movement at a joint, so let's just say, um, and a very common one that I get people to do is let's just say you're trying to improve knee flexion. In order to improve knee flexion, you need to internally rotate or turn the tibia inwards. And so a muscle that can counteract that is your VL, your, your outside quad muscle, your vas lateralis. And so what I have gotten people to do actually is hold a leg extension. So not, so you're not locking the knee out. You're keeping a bend just about maybe five degrees and then foam roll or um, drilling with the massage gun on that VL. Because again, if that VL is concentric, you're not going to allow the VMO to kick on. So I see it as a way to temporarily get a change in contractility of a muscle just to open up that window of movement option. I don't see it as like if you you know, do a Theragun every day, all the time, like it's going to actually improve. But I think the combination or like it's going to improve range of motion. I just think there's a temporary window that it opens depending on the tissue that you, you know, drill or, or gun. But what's, what's nice is that what it does is that it's got a vibration. The, so the vibration aspect of it, I really like, because if you look at somebody who's running or sprinting when they land, and if you like slow-mo their landing, you will see this like vibration or like wave-like effect of contraction of the muscle upon impact. And the way that I see that is 
very similar to what the massage gun will do to one of those tissues is create this like wave-like effect of expansion or eccentric contraction of that muscle or relaxing of that muscle so that I can open up a range of movement. So I think that there is some value to it. I think there's some benefit to it. It's, I mean, it's, it's different obviously than somebody, you know, sticking their thumb in you. Right. Mm-hmm. But I do think that like, there is some value in using a tool like this in order to just open up some movement. So, you know, I'm probably going to get shit on <laughs> we for this. Pol- but... We just polarized the whole talk. Bunch of people just turned it off. Exactly. <laughs> Everyone just still turned it off. Really, really into listening value. So. Exactly. No, you know what? Like I've gotten a lot of success with my clients with it actually on certain things. Like I don't use it on everybody, right? Mm-hmm. This is not like a tool that I use on everybody. It's more like I assess somebody, I try something. Um, like some type of movement or exercise, nothing sticks because maybe they're super stiff or this has been, maybe they've overcome an injury that they didn't address a long time ago, right? And so they have this these tissues that are really bound up around that area. And so it, to me, it's a way to open up that range of motion so that that exercise can now become effective. Because the way that I see an exercise is, again, similar to, like I said, when a sprinter, they land on the ground you see that wave-like effect mm-hmm. of force. I see the same thing happening with an exercise. If I'm laying on my back and I have my foot on the wall and I'm pushing into the wall with my foot, I am trying to get a certain change in motion at every single joint from the foot to the knee to the hip, right? Sometimes I'll have so much tension in one of those regions. So for example, as I said, that VL that's very stiff. So maybe that wave-like effect or that wave of force kind of ends right at the knee because those tissues around the knee are just not, they don't have the yielding ability. They don't have the ability to let go. So now that internal rotation I'm looking for at the hip just isn't going there because they've got, I got a block of stiffness at that knee. So maybe I just drill that knee for a second while I do some type of VMO hold and then I try it again and then look, look, the internal rotation has improved again. Right. So I see it as just a way to open up movement. So people may hate me for it, but I'm sticking to it for now. I will say, yeah, when I was, uh, I mean, I had definitely have been on the mindset of the last, I used to, like eight years ago, 10 years ago, I was always on the foam roller before I work out. And then I started to get this thought like, all right, I'm just going to move and like try to get the same, like just opening just through movement. And that was very successful for me. And then you would see a lot of athletes like just what's the word I'm looking for? Like excessively sitting on foam rollers within the scope of workouts. I was like, this is just now we're just like, you know, you know, like it's like unhealthy. Like Dan John's been on this podcast. I went like when we're actually training, we do not have foam rollers. We train. And so I think that we, but at the same time, even the thought of like a passive treatment, it's not a passive treatment if you're using it in like very um, strategically, like you said, like you want to improve that, like you said, like tibial, unlock some tibial internal rotation by allowing the V, the vastus lateralis or the outside quad to expand. So now I can get that. And I think a lot of people might get that too with a foam roller, but I would imagine like the Theragun could be even better. And the last thing I'll say too is I, I actually, it was funny because I, I had seen the all those types of Theraguns percussion tools around and 
the strength coach at um for basketball cal had one one day and, and he was using it and i was like just curious and i was like yeah, mind if i try that for a minute just you know to see and i, I used it on like my leg i think it was probably my fastest slider else so i used it and i was like and i had actually a little bit like stiffness and soreness from whatever and i used it i was like if this feels so much better and i but i don't think i actually said it and i gave it back to him and i was like wow that was really cool and i never used it again not a principle it's in my head <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean again so there's obviously there's always the the extreme limit to everything where it's not a tool anymore now it's just like this thing is an excuse to not actually get up and be moving which is what we want to avoid but when you really use it for what it is and i also think about like the world is, you know, energy, frequency, vibration, vibration. Like you said, like you see ripples in the skin when people are doing explosive things. Like it's there, and so yeah. just maybe a function of that. I don't know. Anyways, you're redeeming. Got right you got it. Yeah, you're redeeming that for me. Maybe one day <laughs> I will get one. <laughs> don't have I one. Just now. Think maybe that, one day I you will. know what? Like as you said, like what used to happen is all these people would lay in the foam roller for. They would do their five minute foam roller routine, and they would just like foam roll the quads, then foam roll the upper back then foam roll the lats and foam roll the calves like it would just be like it's robotic this, too. Like, there's, there's yeah no, it, there's it's no, not like, specific yeah. where it's, it's like hey i want to improve hip internal rotation well the mechanics of hip internal rotation is the femur turning in so that means the femur is moving away from the sit bone and then the sit bone is moving away from the sacrum so maybe what i can do is i can take that foam roller or that Theragun and put it right there and drill it or sit there and have my femur internally, mm -hmm. externally rotate to create space. And so then it becomes, again, as you said, like very strategic and specific. So it acts as like a mobility exercise yeah. specifically based on the assessment, not just, hey, here, Go Theragun your entire body. Yeah, because you're because you're because you're, you're sore, <laughs> stiff. Air quotes. You're stiff. So go hit do exactly. the, hit the Theragun. Like, yeah. See, so yeah, yeah. like a pre-squat. Hey, we're gonna hit some squats today. Let's you know if you have trouble getting depth uh, or re reversal at the bottom, you know, hit a Theragun on the outer quad or something beforehand or something like that. Exactly. It's just a, it's just to open up some variability because otherwise we cannot get it. Like it's like we we've tried things. They're not working. It's no different than. If you were to have somebody who's done FRC and you say, okay, you know what? The posterior capsule or the back of the hip is very stiff. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do pails and rails at the back of the hip first to open up some space. And then I'm going to do exactly what I said as an example, put my foot against the wall, push into the wall. That's going to give me hip extension. Now that internal rotation of the hip can actually improve, or I can have this integration of foot, knee, and hip again. So it's no different. It's just people like to say, okay, it's an external tool. So it's useless. It's not, it's just another method, no different than the static stretching that everyone likes to do mm -hmm. already. And the pails and rails and all these other modalities that you would use. It's just another step in the sequence or another tool to improve motion. Yeah. Uh, yeah. On that, on that topic too, I, I do want to get into some run specific stuff here in a, in a bit, but just the idea of expansion in general, and it's not just even exercises. It can just be aerobic work. It's like inside out or outside in, like it, it's also in your physiology, like just going for, and I always used to love, and I've been doing a lot more of this recently is just trail running, trail running, nose breathing, um, and making sure like, I, I like to keep it dynamic. I'll do like Russian lunge jumps periodically, or like try to jump on logs and that has been so good for me. Like my, honestly, my sprint workouts, like I've found like if I do, uh, I'll do these days, I only really sprint hard twice a week. I used to do four neural days a week. It's just a little bit too much. And so I've been doing more aerobic stuff, which has been feeling amazing. 
you know, you got the expansion going on. I'm 38, so I need a little bit more of that. But I found that like the day after a doing a workout where I'll go to the trail, do some running, then every I'll do like some Russian lunge jumps, ascending. I'll start with two five second holds, three, and it's because it's like extending everything, like a Russian lunge mm-hmm. jump. And then the next day I'll do a 10 meter flat, and I feel amazing. And so just like the idea of aerobic and blood flow as an expander, where you don't even have to like be that specific necessarily. Like those are always the best. Like okay, you just don't have to be that get that in the weeds. Just go run and don't you know overly. Um, you know, you could use the moxie, and yes, we don't want to run too fast if you're like a wide ISA and you're going to compress too hard or something. But you know, just and, and of all the coaches who have ruined aerobic training by abusing conditioning and doing way too much, obviously we want to be sensitive to that. But I just have such more appreciation for that aerobic effect within reason, um, with that expansive principle as well. Hundred percent. Like you, you, as you said, like you're doing tempo or you're doing higher reps or. Uh, so you're doing higher reps, but not to, but to a certain extent, right? If you do like, if you're maxing out, like you're fatiguing yourself to a point where you start compressing and, you know, the hydrogen ions start to kick in and you start to feel that, you know, soreness of, you know, doing a lot of reps, um, you know, doing a certain amount of reps, doing tempo, doing a longer duration is actually going to be, as you said, it's going to get blood into the muscles. So it's going to expand everything from the inside out and it doesn't have to be every single muscle, right? It doesn't have to be like, Hey, I'm going to do this expansion thing. Like I'm going to do 15 reps of rows then I'm going to do 15 reps of chest press and 15 reps of shoulder press. Like it doesn't have to be like that. It could be something as simple as, Hey, I'm going to do 15 reps of a preacher bicep curl. And what that position is going to do is by expanding my bicep and by holding my arms and my shoulders in a certain position, I'm actually going to open up in between my back, like in between my, sh- my shoulder blades, my scapula. And that's going to actually improve my neck range of motion, improve my shoulder flexion, my external rotation. And it's going to have a translatory effect to my hips because whatever my upper back is going to do or whatever my torso is going to do, I'm going to have similar changes at the, tor- uh, at the pelvis. Now, obviously, it's going to be a little bit different because if I'm doing a preacher curl, I could be sitting down. And if I'm sitting down, I don't have the same force going through my foot, but I can easily cue that. I can say, hey, press your feet to the ground, specifically press these areas of your feet so that we get this whole body effect. So it doesn't have to be like every single body part. It could be one body part, but you position the body in a good position that allows for this total systemic expansion, right? Yeah. Do you have any favorites? I know um, the assault bike is kind of a big one. Like I, I, when I was on, I was on Kyle Law's podcast and he was talking about like, sometimes like people would come with some issues or something like that. And he would just throw them on the assault bike for 10 minutes for a, a period of time or 20 minutes or whatever, whatever time it was. And like some of those issues just kind of disappeared just by virtue of blood flow. And then that's like a very alternating like tool it's reciprocal and alternating my favorite now is the elliptical because it mimics now what i'll do with the elliptical is i will cue a heavy heel the whole time right so what you'll see people do is they go on the elliptical and they'll kind of swing their arms out and then they'll you'll see their heel lift up as they kind of go through the cycle i'll cue a heavy heel and what that's going to do is that's going to keep your center of gravity back onto your heel. So it keeps you in a little bit more of this like mid stance internal rotation type of range mm. where as I'm going 
forwards, I'm going to get maybe into a little bit more of an earlier mid stance. And then when I might push my foot back, it's going to go into a later mid stance. But the point is, is by holding that position for duration, I'm going to get this alternating rotation. So this alternating expansion, compression, or internal and external rotation. Um, but I'm going to get the blood flow, as you said. And so I've used that and improved mobility significantly with some people. Yeah. And it's a great way to like teach them. Again, most people I find have a hard time bending their knee. Most people, the knee extension is not as limited for most people because most people kind of just hang out and knee hyperextension anyway. Yes. Right. Yeah. So knee flexion is something we want to improve because it is the tibia's ability to internally rotate, which means that we can pronate our foot, which again, that's an issue. It seems for a lot of people, the ability to effectively pronate. And that allows us to get depth into our squat, allows us to, you know, get depth in lunges without overstressing our knee. It allows our patella to track properly. So I'm not getting some anterior or patellar femoral pain. It, it, it helps distribute force around my knee so that I don't, I'm not loading my patellar tendon too much. So I find that the elliptical keeps you in this knee flexion, similar to like the assault bike and, and, the, and the biking. Like I prefer the assault bike and the elliptical over just like a standardized recumbent bike, just because it's only your legs moving and your upper body's fixed. And most people, what they'll do is they'll kind of lean into the bike. Do you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. those like normal, like pedaling bikes. And if I do that, then I'm going too deep into hip flexion, potentially something that I don't have. Whereas elliptical, if you have limited hip flexion, limited hip extension, you don't go too deep into either. So you're kind of staying within a good range so that you're not going past what you're able to do essentially. Yeah. So yeah, interesting. You said that I was, I was just thinking too, this is kind of funny. So everyone who's really into sprinting, all the sprint coaches just heard about the Theragun, which is maybe neutral, but then aerobic. And so there, you know, hopefully <laughs> please don't turn off this show. It, this is going to be, it's still, this has been amazing, but we're going to get to all the interest, the, the sprint nuances too here in a minute. So, you know, yeah. but I, I, I love it because I mean, the more that you've been in this, you start to see, like when you realize everyone has a hyper, or not everyone, but there's a lot of people who don't bend their knees. And you start to see it. It's like, wow, your hips are way over your toes and you're just standing there and your knees don't bend. And then one of the eye-opening moments, too, that you had mentioned um, to me before was like even I like to use PVC pipes for, for people standing on. And people who hyperextend their knees have a really hard time because like you have to actually bend your knees a little bit to really get into that, that mode to be able to really melt your foot into those more. And I was like, yeah. wow, that's the thing too. And, and and not to mention squatting, if you can't bend your knees, people are just going to, you know, shove their hips back or compress their back. And we just don't think about these things. And so even like, could you actually briefly just go into um, the tibial internal rotation as well? Like, because that's something where everyone, you know, everyone's like, oh, dorsiflexion. And you know, people, I've heard people debate about stretching. Should we stretch the Achilles? And I'm like, that's always the last thing I ever want to do. And I was just <laughs> thinking too, like with the elliptical as well, I do want to mention this before the tibial internal is. I see a lot of distance runners, a trend is for them, and now I'm connecting, is that instead of the bike on off days, it's like sprinters on off days will run tempo uh, if it's a tempo system. Um, sometimes they don't. but uh, Or do general strength circuits, something expansive, right? But a lot of distance runners, I've seen it more and more popular that they will do like an elliptigo where it's like a bike that's an elliptical. 
And I don't mm-hmm. think that's an accident. I think that, you know, a distance runner too has less movement options generally than a sprinter. And if you have mm-hmm. less movement options, you know, that what you were saying, because it's funny, you'd hear like, oh, on your heels the whole time. That's heresy. Like, you know, Randy Hunting was talking about those earth shoes where like it's a negative heel slope and your toes higher on your heel. And that like took six inches off his vertical. And I get that. But like, <laughs> but if we're thinking about like restoring movement options without tibial internal rotation, without having to stretch or do anything, like that's amazing. So I do make that connection why like a distance runner, you would be even more inclined to use an elliptical as the recovery of choice there to restore movement options. So anyways, I thought it was really cool. Um, internal rotation of the tibia, though, I'd, I'd like to hear you talk about, a little bit more about that before we get going, because you've mentioned it a little bit um, and squatting yeah. and being able to bend the knee. Yeah, for sure. So um, on your point about the elliptical, one other thing that um, to consider that is actually very effective is that it unweights you against gravity. So there's not as much impact forces, right? So you have somebody who runs high volume, right? They're constantly colliding against the ground. It's a way to offload their joints, I guess you could say, um, rather than like go and run on a treadmill or, I mean, a bike kind of is, but the elliptical at least gets the upper body moving. So you're getting some you know, momentum from the upper body, which, you know, with sprinters, the upper body is really, really important. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about that later, but, um, to go back to tibial internal rotation. So essentially there's this bone on your shin. It's a pointy bone right underneath your kneecap. It's called your tibial tuberosity. I look at that little bone as like an aimer of where that tibia is turning. So what you'll have for some people is you'll have a tibia that is turned out and sometimes the foot follows with it. So you have the people lay on their back and their feet kind of just turn out to the side, but their knee cap faces straight up. Some people will call that a tibial torsion. Um, but essentially what that'll look like is it could look like a valgus knee where the femur looks like it's turning in and then the tibia looks like it's turning out. So that's typically associated with straightening the knee. And if held long enough. And, and so if I, if I maintain that leg position, but I'm doing a lot of landing or a lot of collision or a lot of, you know, force production and stuff like that, um, more so force absorption, but Mm -hmm. even force production, what that, what that does, that tibial external rotation and a femur internal, so that little twist that happens actually twists the patellar tendon as well. And that's sometimes why people will get some insertional patellar tendonitis because in order to distribute force through my knee, because the knee is a a main uh, absorber of force when I land. So in heel strike or when I'm landing and running, um, that tibial internal rotation essentially allows the patellar tendon to be in a position to accept force but also allows muscles like my vastus lateralis, which is a majorly important muscle to absorb force, to be in an eccentric position so that the load doesn't have to go just to my knee or my patellar Mm -hmm. tendon. So what tibial internal rotation does is it allows me to bend my knee. So that little pointy part turns inwards. Now that's just at the knee, right? So there's other aspects to it. What I want to have is I want a foot or an arch to come down, pronate. I want an ankle to dorsiflex, and then I want the tibia to internally rotate. I need all of those three below the knee to happen in order to have a successful 
internal rotation or knee flexion of the, or, or knee flexion because of tibial internal rotation. Now, the way that the knee is formed, I have a tibia bone and then I've got a femur bone. That is the knee. And then I have this floating little bone called your patella. That's your kneecap. Well, the femur and so the tibia is connected to the ankle, the shin is connected to the ankle, and the femur is connected to the hip. So, whatever. So, in order for a knee to bend, I'm going to need tibia to internally rotate. So, I need the foot to pronate, ankle flexion. That's all internal rotation. And at the hip, I also need internal rotation. The thing is, is the tibia moves faster than the femur. So it's going to look like the femur is relatively externally rotated, but it's not the case. If you want to make it simple, like everything in the lower limb is internally rotating just at different degrees Mm -hmm. because of the amount of motion that occurs, right? Like if I pronate my foot and you will see this with some people is they'll dump their entire foot in. And so it looks like they're their ankle looks like it's dumping in. That's not pronation. That is just like orienting or making all the bones move as one unit into the ground. And sometimes you'll see that as like a valgus at the knee, right? So um, that just means that the ankle can move more than the shin or the ankle can move more or or the arch can move more than the ankle. Mm -hmm. So there's different areas that move to different degrees, just like the hip moves more than the knee. It makes sense, right? So the shoulder moves more than the elbow, right? So different things move different directions. So tibial interrotation is extremely important to absorb force. If I cannot bend my knee, then the force is going to, the patellar tendon is going to take load. The meniscus is going to take load. I'm going to take load of my hip, maybe my back. Maybe my foot, maybe my foot is, is stuck in a position that's not able to absorb force effectively. So I start getting some soft tissue stuff. Maybe I get some plantar fasciitis. I get the Achilles tendonitis, right? Like to stretch the Achilles is unnecessary because the Achilles, if, if it's, if you feel like your Achilles is tight and it needs to be stretched, it's probably because your foot's not dynamic enough or it's yeah. probably because your knee can't bend. Right. Like your Achilles will naturally stress or stretch like an elastic band when I'm able to dorsiflex properly and I'm able to pronate properly as well as bend my knee. So tibial interrotation is pretty important. And it's why in the majority of people, I would say like nine out of 10 people, and this is anecdotal from what I've seen, nine out of 10 people don't have it. Because our mm-hmm. tendency is to go towards this external rotation because external rotation gets us off the ground faster. And so we will have the tendency to try to roll off of our foot to get off the ground quickly, but not spend enough time on the ground, which is what IR does. It, if you look at gait, there's heel strike, which is external rotation. And then mid stance is this really long phase. And then we go back to toe off, which is this external rotation. Most people can't handle the amount of force that is going into the body during that mid stance phase. Mm -hmm. And so what they try to do is they roll off the outside of their foot to get around it so that they don't go, so their tibia doesn't go forward and their foot flattens. 
to go through it. So yeah, it's, it's, it's very important. Yeah. So yeah, outside edge of the foot, good for setting up an early stance. Once you get to mid stance, if you don't transition to, you need to transition to inside edge and mid stance and internally rotate. Otherwise you're going to run into problems potentially. Exactly. You have to roll on the inside of your foot to then move into big toe extension. Mm -hmm. So essentially when my, when I go into pronation, so my load goes through the center of my foot, like essentially where the laces are, that should be like underneath that should be going into the ground. Um, When that goes to the ground, the ball, the big toes, the first metatarsal head actually lifts off the ground a little bit. Because what that's doing is that's lengthening the plantar fascia to then allow me to push my first med head into the ground. And that allows for big toe extension. And that then causes the Achilles to just release all of his elastic energy, the plantar fascia to release the um, elastic energy, which is your wind last mechanism um, and allows your calves to contract and all those lift up the heel to allow you to propel forward and onto the other leg. So if you don't have that pronation, you're not going to be able to get extension of the big toe properly. So you're going to roll on the inside of the big toe and that's where you start to see bunions or calluses forming on the outside of the big toe and all these weird shapes of your mm-hmm. foot. Yeah. So just, just quickly, cause I do want to, uh, you have, you've opened up my mind to this and I have a few questions related to it. So I want to get to them, but I also have a lot of sprint questions and obviously I don't want to do all this and then have like 10 minutes and then, all right, just bang, bang, bang. Let's go out through, you know, upper body and sprinting. <laughs> extension. Okay. Uh, but so just quickly, what are some things, some generalities that help to restore that tibial? And again, like you were saying, it's relative. That's why I think it always gets confusing too. It's without a picture or a video, right? It's like, well, everything's internally rotating just at different rates. Anyways, the ability of that tibia to internal rotate enough relatively, uh, what are some, I mean, I'm sure there's bottom up strategies, right? Like the foot pronating and the arch flattening, and then there's top down, like you mentioned that lateral quad, letting that go. Like what are some key strategies that, like if an athlete just really struggles to squat, really struggles to bend their knees, to move their knees, or, you know, knees moving over the toes is, is popular obviously now, but like if an athlete just can't internally rotate, I imagine they have to compensate to do that somewhat. So what are some ways that Um, we can help restore that element of movement. Yeah. First thing is if you can't internally rotate um, and you're a stiff person, first thing I'm thinking about doing is shifting the center of gravity backwards. So things that you can do. So when you're in hip flexion between the ranges of like 60 ish to 120 ish of hip flexion, that's kind of where your body internally rotates. So if you think 90 degrees is the sticking point and the reason why it's so tough is because that is where maximal internal rotation or force into the ground happens. So some things that you can do is you can get athletes to, or people to box squat. And 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 so you're reducing their depth to 60 to 90, whatever that is. Um, You can do uh, step downs because what you're doing is you're forcing the knee to decelerate the tibia. So oftentimes when people can't pronate effectively, it's because when they take a step forward, their shin bone kind of slams forward. If that makes sense, Mm -hmm. it dumps forward. And so then their foot dumps in. So one thing you can do is a step down because it's going to force you to control knee flexion. Um, You'll feel the tibialis of the shin muscle kick on, you'll feel the VMO kick on. Um, Other things you can do, as you said, from bottom up, 
toes elevation stuff is going to be very good because it's going to force, it's going to take the toes out of the way because oftentimes the toes grip onto the ground and they Mm -hmm. create a high arch. Mm -hmm. So by lifting the toes, you're forcing the arch to go down to the ground and force you to have more heel. The way that I look at it is like you're inverting the foot where I'm basically taking the toes out. And so I have this more angled foot. So now that forces the weight to go into my arch and into my heel. And so then I'm able to control the heel more effectively, control the arch. I get some ankle flexion. And then on top of that, I'm starting to bend my knee. So I need to, the key is, is to bend your knee and to flex your ankle properly. So that is reducing depth to 60 to 120. That is um, increasing the duration of the movement. So maybe you're doing isometric holds because like I said, that mid stance is the longest phase of gait. So because of that holding a position, maybe like a, a split squat at 90 degrees with toes elevated, I'm holding it for 10 second holds or 15 second holds. That could be very effective because what you're doing is you're delaying the mid stance, the internal rotation. So they're able to internally rotate the tibia. So it has to do with knee flexion, depth of the hip. So 60 to 120 and the ability to dorsiflex the ankle. So toes elevated, um, look like even those like banded needle wall thing aren't terrible. Like they actually do work. What are those banded needle? What are are those banded needle wall? So I'm in like a kneeling position. Oh, banded knee to wall. Sorry. You just said it. Knee to wall. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So like I take a band and it's, it's pulling me back and pull my ankle back and then driving my knee towards the wall. Like that actually could be a very good thing. Um, I'll get people to grab onto the top of their shin. So underneath their knee and while they do like a needle wall or something like that, I get them to actually manually twist their tibia in as they do it. And they actually feel that tibialis anterior kick on. And then it's just, yeah, needle wall, ankle flexion, standing. Like there's so many different things. It's just about internally rotating the hip, dorsiflexing the ankle, pronating the foot. Those what, are key. What do you think about, as you were talking about that, it actually, it was making me think about, um, so Chris Corfist and, and Cal Dietz as well. I think it was, I think this was originally Chris's, I'm not exactly sure who started off to ask them, but they had the ankle rocker squats, which have been very popular. And the, 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 the movement was like, your, your torso is very vertical. The, when you said the partial squats and toes up, like just something clicked for me at that. So standing vertical, like my torso is vertical, like I'm in a pipe. And then they would put their hands on their hips so they couldn't crank in the anterior. So kind of stay neutral or maybe more expanded. And then they mm-hmm. would just squat down with the knees forward and the feet flat trying to push in a dorsiflexion. But I think Chris had a version yes. where he actually had the toes up doing that. Um, or I'd mentioned that. I'm, I'm almost positive he had some sort of version. So I'm almost thinking. And then they would show before and after with vertical jumps. And the athletes would get a lot better knee bend in those verticals. Before they would just do a hips back strategy. Um, and then with after the rocker. So what you're saying makes me think like, wow, like those rockers, especially with the toes up, uh, maybe throw some of that as like Thomas Shaw would have like those toe risers too, right? Like you can <laughs> toe risers, toe, yeah. Toe, toe those will work too. Like a hundred percent, like those, like, um, those kind of squat, exactly that squat where you're keeping vertical and then you're just kind of like bringing your knees over your toes, but keeping heel heavy. Like that's great. You know, what's also a really good one is Spanish squats. 
where you take the band and you tie it to a rack and the band is basically around the top of your knees. Mm. If you've ever seen that and you squat down, you're not going to get full depth because um, tibial internal rotation really stops at like 120, 130 degrees of hip flexion. And so you're not going to get to the bottom or you shouldn't get to the bottom. It's not necessary. But those Spanish squats, what they'll do is they'll pull your tibias forward. And so that will then get this internal rotation pulling force from the band. And then, it'll, and then you squat down to 90 degrees. So you will maintain like this vertical torso as you're going down, but that's actually a really good strategy. And then wall squats. Yeah. I was I mean, just going to ask you about that. Yeah. Yeah. Like just Especially, a seated 90 degree wall squat you're talking about, or like a sliding just, one. <clears throat> just 90 degree wall squat. You could do the sliding wall squat as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you could do 90 degree wall squat, but one wall squat that I've really been enjoying is I squat down to 45 degrees and then I put ramps underneath my feet. So it's like I'm dorsiflexing my feet. Okay. That makes sense. So I got like right underneath my toes all the way to my arch. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I go to 45 is because the vastus lateralis starts to lose leverage at about 45-ish, 30 to 45-ish degrees of hip flexion and knee flexion. And so I can hold that position. That's going to elongate, so to say, in air quotes, the VL and allow my VMO, which, which helps internally rotate the tibia, to kick on. And so that's also one that I've been playing around with and been very, very effective with, especially people who have like these varus knees. Yeah. I wanted to take a break from the show and briefly share with you the difference that performance herbalism can make for you. Several years ago, I had Logan Christopher, CEO of Lost Empire Herbs on the show to talk about hypnosis and mental training for athletes. While talking to him, I realized he also had an herbalism company. So shortly thereafter, I used the Phoenix formula, which was my first product I bought from them. I had great results with it, not only increasing my energy and decreasing my need for coffee and caffeine, but I also noticed that it was making an impact on my lifts and my weight room numbers. I was having a great training experience. Shortly thereafter, I also got into the Shiliagit resin as well as other herbs. And I don't look at supplementation the same way. I'm a strong believer in what Logan and his company are doing in looking for a natural resource to boost human performance. If you want to check out the herbs that I use personally from Lost Empire Herbs, you can head to www.lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. There you can get 15% off your order, and they offer a 365-day money-back guarantee. Definitely check them out. Let's get on back to the show. I've been appreciating more and more as well in thinking about these things like Jay Schrader's Extreme Isometrics. I mean, the ISO lunge is very popular, although I actually, he did the rear foot elevated into the flat, but I've actually really liked the, you know, putting a 25 pound plate under the front foot, you know, like that to restore. It's not as much go, it's more restorative. But then even like the wall squat is like, it's so simple because it's so simple. I feel like people like just dismiss it, you know, like, and he would have you pull into it too, which I feel like is almost more heels, right? It's like more, and the more I think about all those extreme ISOs, I'm like, these are expansive and restorative. They create the potential. They're creating potential, yeah. and then you go do your thing. Then you do the explosive movements and all these. And um, I just, I just, yeah, it's it's just funny things that are so simple. People will um, be dismissive of, and even um, like I used to get good. Uh, I used to really like, um, like this was in Probot X, Marv Marinovich. It was like a single leg physio ball wall squat where you have a physio ball between your back and the wall, 
your foot's in front of you. So you end up in like a wall squat position, but it's on a single leg. And those were, after doing a lot of barbell work and lifting, I did that stuff for a few weeks. I felt so good. It was just popping off the ground. Like, and it's now like I restoring movement options. You're just allowing your joints to have those, give those rotations back. And so that's it. Exactly. I mean, look, the, the fact is if you look at the research for isometrics, um, with people who are in pain, I mean, I, again, pain is very complex and all this stuff, but let's just talk about mechanical pain, right? They have like knee pain, for example. What they found is that by holding an isometric position at let's say 90 degrees, uh, you're going to get a lot of blood flow into that area, which then reduces the nociceptors sensitivity essentially. And so, as you said, like isometrics, they're very expansive. The thing is, is if I have somebody who has like a really like big valgus or varus in their knees. I may refrain from going to 90 degrees because what happens at 90 degrees is all the muscles of the quad. So the VMO, the rectus, femoris, the um, VL, like all those muscles, they actually contract relatively um, symmetrically. Like they all contract together at different degrees for sure, but they all contract together. And so if I've got a VL that is cranked on to overdrive, going to 90 degrees to start may not be the most effective because the VL is just going to overpower all the other ones. It's like you're, you're flexing your bicep and you're trying to flex it more. That's what the VL is doing. So instead, maybe starting at 45, where the VL is maybe a little bit less leveraged, then you start to open up some of that VMO activity that then allows you for tibial IR. And then you can follow that up with something at 90 degrees or something more dynamic, such as your sliding wall squats or sliding um, single leg squats. And at the gym, the something that I think is very similar to a wall squat is the hack squats. Mm. It's very, very yeah. similar right? It's you're, you're on an angle, your center of gravity is going back into the pad, your feet are in front of you. And that's the key is having your feet in front of you and your torso behind you that shifts everything backwards. And then you're able to load that, that angle. And, and that's a great way to restore it as well. Right. So it doesn't have to be like corrective exercise. It's just training, but you're just modifying the depth or you're modifying your center of gravity yeah when you're training yeah i think that's the big thing is people don't like to feel like they're just doing a bunch of yeah i guess even correctives so i feel like we need a different <laughs> just different like even because it's like as soon as i feel like i'm in corrective biomechanical minutiae like it's almost just a different part of the brain even and i mean I don't, it, it can be a good thing that there's novelty and challenge but at the same time like you know you were saying the toes up and i was even thinking you know i mentioned caldeets i've heard him talk about uh, like toes up, I believe toes up on the way down into the bottom, the drop of a squat, which that makes perfect sense to me. Um, I think he had had at the time, like the toes gripping down into the reversal, which I don't think I would, I would um, instruct that, but I definitely see the toes like, so it's just like, Hey, here's the big movement that you typically do. Just lift the toes up on the way down to, you know, allow a little bit more tibial internal rotation, make it more foot arch centric, you know, that those little yeah. small things, I think, yeah, they could go a long way. Like, I think like, so, you know, in my evolve mentorship, you know, like one of the things that we do is we dive deep into my mechanics and, and the, and some people may say, oh, it's not really important. But like, for me, I'm not trying to dive deep into these things to 
get more corrective exercises, more so how to be that much more specific with the exercise. Yeah. So for one person, I may do just a normal split squat and I may get them to hold in a goblet position. Somebody else, I may get them to do a front foot elevated split squat and hold it in the opposite arm. So the right leg's forward, left hand is holding it. Somebody else, I'm going to get them to grab a you know cable and pull it across and hold a pal-off press position as they're doing their split squat. They're all loading. They're all doing the split squat. It's just different ways. And so it's more about when you're, under, you're able to understand these mechanics and able to assess and determine how this person is and isn't moving, you're able to modify the common exercises you're going to do anyway in your program. And you're just putting them in different positions and you're putting the load in different directions so that I'm able so you're able to bias a certain movement. So it's really just being more strategic and calculated with what exercises you're picking. So there's more transferability. That's it. Yeah. I think it, it helps you. There's, I mean, there's, we're on complete information overload at this stage of, you know, humans, humanity is speeding up, you know, with the internet, like we are moving at a faster pace, you know, more has been done. I don't know what the exact stats are, but if you think about all the discoveries and accomplishments and information of the last 10 years compared to even the hundred before it, right? Like, like, and so we, we see so many things and people don't know how to make sense of it. And to me, it's, yeah, it's not, I don't need to learn another corrective exercise. I need to learn the principles for me and what I do. I need to learn just, okay, all these things I've seen, like, for example, like Dan Fichter had a extreme ISO lunge version where he had a band around the front, like ankle, shin, calf that was pulling the shin forward. You have to respond by pulling it back. Back mm-hmm. in the day, I would think, oh, good, more hamstring. We want more hamstring. And and that, yeah, yeah, it will get you more hamstring. But now I'm like, no, that helps pull you back into mid stance and, and early and it gives you movement options. And then you go and you squat and it feels amazing. Like this is yeah. why, or I could elevate the front foot just a little bit or, you know, like it doesn't have to be these giant wholesale changes it's just well how do i get more expansion out of this or wow that person is just completely on their toes they don't really use mid stance and you know they don't have movement options well i definitely want to get you going on this and so it just yeah to me it it definitely helps with this the big rocks and it's just understanding the big rocks just a little bit better it's like all right how can we take these small percentile things and and put them into what we're already doing and just make it better without having to try so hard yeah and the cool thing about it is that as i said there's transferabilities you can look at an athlete or you look at a sprinter, you know, running or sprinting and and you can see where biomechanically they're either not moving efficiently or how they're compensating or how they're putting force into the ground, how they're getting off the ground. And, you know, even looking at something like arm swing, it's just like, are their arm swings really choppy and fast? Are they going out to the side? Are they coming across the body too much? Are they going you know, in parallel with their shoulders, right? Like all these different things we can start to associate and be like, Hey, look, this person isn't rotating very well. Yeah. Or this person is running with these wide choppy arms. I can tell that, Hey, maybe these areas are more compressed or more stiff. So opening up this variability could actually help with their performance because they're not constantly running into tension. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So let's uh with that said, like let's switch gears into I mean, hopefully, you know, we can we can at least get through a few of these in their due diligence. We've been talking about all about the load and the expansion. So let's talk about some explosive compression, which 
that's I mean that's why we're all we're all here, right? <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> enough expansion. Teach me how to compress and be fast, you know. And so exactly. this was a light bulb moment for me because you had assessed in in the mentorship, you had assessed my standing posture, which it's funny because I'm here thinking, oh, my standing posture is pretty good. Like, and I mean, and everyone <laughs> has their own you know thing. No one's like perfect, or whatever, right? Like, but I yeah. but it's me. Like I'm stand I'm here standing, and and okay. So background, I, I think stories are helpful for people to like really understand things. I was a high jumper. I was much better at going up than I was forward. I would drive myself nuts actually thinking about like maybe, you know, are my glutes not strong enough or, you know, is are my hamstrings not strong or what? Why am I so much more explosive jumping up than I can propel myself forward? I mean, my my college, um, my high jump and triple jump personal bests were quite good. But my sprint, I mean, I was a four by 100 alternate at best. And eventually mm-hmm. I just got kicked off that relay. You know, like I just didn't have that i mean i don't know the year i jumped something i think i might have been able to run a good leg but i probably could have but it's always been behind and then you know you you do this assessment and i and my arms are sitting there like externally rotating like kind of like elbows close to me but like arms kind of out like anatomical position and Mm -hmm. then my hips uh, and again i want to make this as simple as possible basically my hips are also like basically like expanded like if i um, how do I want like counter explaining mutation and counter mutation on these podcasts, unless you're a physical therapist, like it's just, it just, I, I, if this was me two years ago, I'm like, wait, what? So basically like my, my hips are also expanded out. So like I am externally rotated my shoulders and my hips. And I think that when you had brought that out and, and like, even like my knees will like knock together forward or they're trying to get the internal rotation that my hips don't have. So I don't know if maybe you can explain better and simply what's going on with me, but to me that connected in that I can go up, I can expand and deflect myself up, but for me to go forward, like that's a whole different story. And so I've been, I've been messing around with those concepts and I've been understanding and feeling that. So maybe can we start with just in order for someone to sprint and take things and direct things forward, can you explain um, the importance of uh, hip internal rotation, but also shoulder. Because, yeah, like you said, that's a way, and I, I believe it, that is a way more important part of sprinting than I think we would have originally thought. Yeah, I think there's, we, we, and we talked about this a little bit before we got, we got on, um, <clears throat> most sprinter, okay, so to go back to fundamentals, external rotation is all about getting you off the ground. So if you look at anybody, jump. Right, just jump straight up, and you took a picture of them as their foot left the ground. You see their toes point towards the ground, their foot plantar flex, which just means pointing, and their arch higher or supinated. And you'll see their knees are extended, their hips are extended, their backs extended. So that is getting me off the ground. So yeah. people with a lot really of high jumpers rigid. built like that, by the way, just What's that? a lot of high jumpers built like that. Just wanted to throw that oh, on the track. High exactly. Jumpers, yeah. yeah. Perfect. Exactly. And it's not, it's not dissimilar to a sprinter. You know, you see them when they're in that flight phase, you'll see that trail leg. It's going to look like it's pointing to the ground. It's um, supinated and plantar flex because of the fact that it is propelling me. I've just propelled off my big toe, which kicks on that calf, kicks on the Achilles tendon, lifts me off the ground. So when I land, when I'm doing a, when I'm, you know, if I'm running like a sprinter, right? Like, or am I landing? I'm going to land in this external rotation position because I'm going to land in external rotation. I'm going to come off the ground in external rotation. The thing is though, is when my foot collides against the ground, it pushes my feet out to the side in order for me to access my inner arch. So it's like, I'm not really 
I'm pronating in the ground. I'm not really pronated, right? Where I'm yeah. like getting this like moment. The collision made oh. you pronate, not your body the coll- pronating. Exactly. You. The collision makes you pronate, not my body. So what I have is I've got this external rotation force going up towards my hip because I want to get off the ground quickly. But my torso, which is heavier than my hips, are, are swinging the arms to get my torso in front of me so that I'm able to propel myself forward and get into this relatively hip extended position. Because as you said, it is the ground that's causing the internal rotation. It's not my, my hip or my body. I'm staying in this externally rotated yeah. position. But as I swing my arm to shift my torso forward, that is the internal rotation coming top down, which it's not landing underneath me at my foot. It's actually landing in front of me. So that's why you get these, these like sprinters, these high level sprinters have these really arched backs because they're shifting their torso in front of their body in order to propel quickly to make sure their heel isn't staying glued or stuck into the ground. So they're able to get off their toes really quickly. So I've got a combination of um, external rotation for when I'm landing, external rotation, getting me off the ground, but the weight of the torso creating internal rotation into the ground to allow me to put enough force into the ground to do this quickly. Right. So it's, it's a, it's kind of confusing, but just think the lower half of the body that's externally rotating. And the fact that my torso is being pushed forward because my arms are swinging, that's going to create the force into the ground to allow me to propel off of the ground faster. Yeah. So in order to move forward, I need to externally rotate first. Then I need to put force into the ground, which is my internal rotation. Then I need to get off of the ground, which is my external rotation again. But that last phase of external rotation should be more um, elasticity based versus muscular based. I have, if I, if it's a muscular based strategy to get off the ground, that's when you start having overuse injuries and soft tissue injuries. Um, it's why people with bladder arches are not going to be as fast. Typically it's people who have higher arches. I mean, that's, I mean, guess not totally true. There's some really fast people, but like, if you were to look at mechanically, if like the mechanical efficiency, having a higher arch, maybe a little bit better it's definitely more efficient there's a lot i would say i would say in actual flat out sprinting and jumping like having a flat foot that's not collapsed is it's where that's awesome like that's almost like the because it because it can it can it can um what do you call it it's just is a latency time is lower for a good flat foot versus a collapsed flat foot yeah like no that's not (laughs) collapsed foot you're, you're you're just glued into the ground you can't create that external rotation it's like you are internally rotating into the ground um, and you're not achieving that external rotation to get off of the ground. So instead what you do is you use your back more to get off of the ground. Yeah. Right. It's like you're arching your back to shove your center mass even more forward than you normally are. So you can get off of the toes quickly, but it's like you, 
you step on the ground. It's like you're stepping on a piece of gum. You're glued onto the ground for longer. So now you have to attenuate that much more force, right? Yeah, that's one of the things that that's where I think um, I, I think that the marching sprint drills can have some value. But I think that in terms of actually connecting to sprint mechanics, like this is another example where I believe they fall short because there's nothing. It's all up. It's like, you know, the coach is instructing the sprint drill and everything is like we said, ER gets you off the ground. As an athlete, I had plenty of ER, like as a high jumper, I could do, I could ER for days. I was bouncy as shit. And yet yeah. like, and that's why I think part of it, like I'm, I, you know, you, you, you look at your own personal biases and you're like, okay, well, like I was bouncy as shit. I'm doing all these sprint drills and all these various switching drills and all this stuff um, that never helped me run faster because what I actually needed was to create more IR at the shoulders to help me go forward. And the thing that actually helped me to learn to do that was squatted running because it gave me like this position to leverage that IR. And it also got me like one hell of a glute pump too. Because <laughs> I was really just trying, I was already tall. Like, and, and then I couldn't, you know, I was just trying to get taller. It never worked. And so I, I also think of these uh, squatted positions as, as uh, you know, maybe you're not going to run quite that squatted, but it gives you a point where you can leverage that arm internally rotating across to deal with that IR collision of the foot on that side. So exactly. that's like, it's like a leverage like, point. In your case, where you're talking about how your elbows are close to your body, but your hands are kind of swung out. Yeah. That it's like, it's called a valgus elbow. That's just your resting position in order for you, as you said, to get the torso to go forward. Let's say my left foot is colliding against the ground. And so my right arm is swinging. Well, this right torso should be internally rotating or going more forward than my right foot, if that makes sense. My left foot collides, my right foot's pushing off, so my right shoulder should be getting in yeah. front of that right foot. And if I can't do that, then that is when I am going to retract my shoulder blades to go forward. So now I have these really choppy, <laughs> yeah. like robotic type of running versus, you know, coming across my body with my arm. So if I cannot internally rotate my shoulders, I am not going to be able to get that forward momentum using my torso to be able to manage the forces, the colliding forces coming from the ground. Because what will happen instead is if I can't do that, my left foot is going to hit the ground and my arch is going to collapse into the ground. So I'm not able to get off of that foot quickly. So in order to get off the foot quickly, as I said, I'm going to have to push my lumbar spine more forward so I can get off of my toes. Otherwise, I'm going to stay on the ground way too long. Yeah. So it's important to have torso or shoulder internal rotation just as much as it is for hip internal rotation. Um, people don't really focus on the shoulders because they're like, well, it's the feet contacting the ground. Well, the upper body has a massive influence on the leg's ability to absorb these forces and to release the forces. Yeah. As a kind of a story that goes along with that too, as you're talking and, and the development of, uh, Abby Steiner, who just set the, like the collegiate record in the 200 indoor and outdoor, her technique is very interesting. Because if you, and I'll have to post a video of her running as well as like the Spanish squats, but she has her shoulders very rounded forward. She has very well-developed deltoids, like you were saying with the shoulder strength and 
compared to when she was like in high school, she swung her arms, uh, her elbows back a lot more into the backswing. Now it's almost entirely front side, like everything, like her elbows don't go very far at all back behind her body. And I'm not saying that's the perfect for everybody. I just think it's interesting because it, it does tie these concepts down. She has a pretty fast stride rate. She's pretty terrestrial, like she's into the ground a little bit more. But everything is just, it's just like arms coming forward across, even across the midline a little bit. Like, which everyone's like, oh, don't do that. It just, and you you saying saying this also cracks me up when you, you see coaches like have the hand right in line with the shoulder. Because now yeah. you can't pull yourself forward and, and internally rotate across at all. And I'm mm-hmm. like, and it just doesn't make any, and again, that's, that's where we're living in vertical land, you know, where there's nothing yeah. that's horizontal that's helping us to actually internally rotate and come forward across the body to do that. And I think when you watch Abby Steiner's sprint, you see the epitome of that. Like that is that strategy, a shoulder internal rotation to get the mm-hmm. foot back down about as far as you could take it. I mean, it's really interesting. So um, yeah. yeah, with the, the strong shoulders too, I think that there's been people who are like, oh, this is why shoulders sprinter, their shoulders are jacked. And what you were saying, I think fits really well with it. Like the, the uh, front delt actually helps with humoral internal rotation. So it actually helps with shoulder internal rotation, hmm. like the front of the shoulder. Um, but based on that point, there was a, I can't remember the sprinter you sent me. Remember you were sending me a sprinter. Uh, she was like wide. Can't remember her what? name. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, the the Polish um the sprinter. Polish sprinter. Yeah, is the one I post. Yeah, she. I do forget her name as yeah. well. She ran like seven zero in the sixty. Yeah, super yeah. fast. She was she was a great example of. The, so what I'm thinking about right now is another way to illustrate this is as we were talking about before, like when you hit the ground, you see those like ripple effects of muscles contracting or the body kind of like shaking because of the force. And what you'll see is. If my left foot is striking the ground, you'll see that rippling effect of force go up the leg, the shaking of Mm -hmm. the leg. It'll go across the abdominals, like it'll go across the abs. You'll see that rotation or that twisting happening at the abs because the right shoulder is going to come forward. If I have, so what's going to happen is the force is going to go from my left leg, it's going to travel up, go across my abs, across my stomach, and then my right arm is going to reverse course that force yeah so now the ripple effect exactly it's going to go right back down my foot and that allows me to propel Mm. so it's like i've got this external rotation wave coming up that allows me to land and then i've got this shoulder that's going to reverse course the force to put the pressure back into that left leg so i can propel off of it again but as you were mentioning with that, with that sprinter is if you are running with your elbows coming too far back, what is going to happen is you're not going to have enough time to get the arm forward and across your body. Yes. Or if you don't have that internal rotation and you're constantly running as if you're squeezing your shoulder blades together, what's going to happen is you're not going to be able to rotate your torso enough to reverse gear that force like we just talked about. Instead, what you're going to do is you're just going to be dumping your shoulders or you're going to be hiking your hips or you're going to be arching your back and rotating through the lumbar spine because you can't rotate the torso enough, quick enough anyway, right? So I think it's important indication that we're not talking about orienting or rotating the whole torso to get it it is just one side that is rotating forward as the other side rotates back 
if I just dump forward, then everything is going to be crunching over that left hip. And that's not what we want. We can't get off the foot then. Yeah, we're like the sternum's kind of also pointing down, like pump handle down as well. Exactly. So yeah, so that's like like, pump handle is going to go down if I'm like orienting the whole torso versus if I'm rotating, then the pump handle is going to come up on the right and then close down on the left. Yeah, that makes sense. Because Darian Barry, who talks about athletic posture and sprinting, he like he wants to project or push the sternum or xiphoid forward. So that would basically keep you from ending up with pump handle down. That would make you orient. Or I think about it like, you know, it's funny because you're you're doing these motions on the other side of Zoom. I'm like, I need to screenshot this and put it in the show notes. But like, imagine like a two by four, your shoulders are now a two by four and that two by four is pointed down. And you exactly. are like this board going back and forth and uh, versus being, you know, it's like as soon as the stifoid comes forward, you can be more reciprocal, uh, and that just helps helps that yeah. motion. It's like squeezing your shoulder blades together and then turning your whole chest bone or sternum towards the left leg. That is what we don't want. That is the orienting mm. versus taking your elbow and punching it across yeah. towards your left knee. Like that is what we're looking for. That kind of rotation, and depending on the physical structure of your torso, some people have a harder time achieving that. Like narrows, narrow those narrow infrasternal angles with more of a smaller torso, they have more of a harder time coming across their body. Yeah. They're good at extending their shoulder, coming like bringing their shoulder backwards, yeah. but bringing it forward across their body is a little bit difficult versus wides. Those are your more choppy ones. They cannot extend their shoulder. What they do is they just keep their arms in front of them. So they're like swinging side to side. Right. And that again is just like, it can't externally rotate. So it's just forcing the ground, forcing the ground, forcing the ground, no force coming off the ground or, absor- or, you know, release of force. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, that's I, I'm, I'm Darian Barrett also talked about how upright sprinting where acceleration <laughs> is a little more backside arm dominant. Once you get into upright, it's more yeah. front side dominant. And again, there's going to be different spectrums. It's not like I'm going to sit there and my elbows don't like go the back. You know, there's like, there's a spectrum of it, but I was watching uh, Femke Bull is a um, uh, hurdler, 400 hurdler from the Netherlands. And she is pretty compressed. Like if you watch her like uh, doing snatches in the gym, like you could tell she doesn't really have very good um, shoulder flexion. Like she's um, kind of like a distance sort of compressed, like, like not a ton of movement options. But when she sprints, her elbow does not go very far to the back side, maybe because of the compressional bit. I'm almost positive she's a narrow, but it's almost like that compression is almost, because I was asking uh, Katie St. Clair about this a little bit. Like it's almost like the compression and the inability to get that elbow too far from the backside, or maybe she's just learned to sprint better is helping her to really power through into the front side where a lot of people who are a little looser and they just don't manage things. Well, their elbows flying up behind them, you know, and they're, they're losing it. But she's, I mean, she just threw down a 52, two in the 400 hurdles. Like, I mean, she is fast and she may, and the thing with those people too, is they maintain it well. Like Abby Steiner maintains speed really well. And it's almost because they're, they're using like their structure and their mechanics to get it versus Mm. like, you know, at some point you're just going to have to use muscles to control these limbs that are going crazy all over the place. Like the, the speed is one thing for these people, but the speed endurance is just blows my mind. Like they can really maintain that well. So one thing that I've noticed because I've been, you know, talking to you more about, you know, sprinting is. The difference between wide and narrow. So when you have like narrow infrasternal angle, they're more biased towards external rotation and their pelvic floor descending, right? So what they need to do is they need to produce more force into the ground to ascend or contract that pelvic floor versus a wide 
a wide needs to, they have a internal rotation bias. Their pelvic floor always wants to be contracted. Hmm. So we need to relax them and give them more external rotation. So one thing I've noticed is that the sprinters that are narrow, they actually have more of a horizontal bias of running versus the wides. They kind of go more vertically up and down. Yeah. And that is because of that bias. The more horizontal I go, the more we talked about this last time about force vectors, but the horizontal force vector is more externally rotated bias, whereas the vertical displacement is more internal rotation bias. So it's like if you're doing more vertical displacement, you're just landing in the ground hard, and then you have to produce that much more force to get off mm-hmm. the ground. Whereas if it's horizontal, you're kind of using those elastic you know, potential of your Mm -hmm. body in order to get off the ground. And so it's just one thing that I've been noticing as well with that is that based on the architecture of the, or the structural architecture of the torso and of the pelvis, you're going to get some differences in terms of how these people are maybe losing energy. Yeah. Yeah. And there's that, that does to show too. I think we, it's like we always want to, oh, there's just, this, just give me these three like sprint constraints that are the best for everybody. And it's like, well, no, like we have wides and we have narrows. And I look at, I was looking at, um, I did an analysis with like Joseph Fombole, a sprinter from Florida. That guy is a prototypical narrow, so rotational. But then yeah. we also think about everyone who's been to attract me to seeing this, the super muscular dude, the wide I say coming out of the box and just the head's just going boom, 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 like bouncing exactly. up and down like a sewing machine. And it's like yeah. each of these athletes could probably have a, you know, to find help find their, I mean, Joseph Fonblaze or he, that guy's a beast, but like someone who's like, let's say super compressive and bouncing up and down, they need to find a way to get rotation somehow. And so for me, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, that's where I'm moving towards is finding these archetypes, finding constraints. And I'm finding like a, a wide ISA may do well with like a low knee running where you can't, you don't get to use your knees, knee lift much. So you have to find a way to basically manage rotation around a somewhat more expanded strike leg. So my, my, because of the low knee, I'm a little more expanded on strike. And then my left shoulder has to find a way around. Like those types of things I think is important because otherwise we just plaster. I mean, to be honest, most people are still in the vertical sprint drill type thing. We didn't even get in horizontal anyways, but it's like, all right, once yeah. you find horizontal, now let's throw some constraints at you that can help you manage what your structure is and what your greatest need is. For me, it was squatted running for sure. And I still, I think that's, um, I think that's really helpful for a lot of people on a lot of levels. Uh, actually, the last thing I do want to ask you is regarding to like being uh, like, a, let's just say even hill running because a hill running, you have to squat a little bit more and hip mm-hmm. extension. I, I, you know, in the mentorship, you talk about hip flexion, hip extension. Could you explain? Because I do think that's something people don't consider often. Uh, so hip flexion, hip, hip extension. Uh, what are some principles of restoring in the gym? And then I'd like to get any yeah, like hill running or squatted running and, and some ideas on that. Yeah. So hip extension in order to prove that. So there's two things that need to happen. So as, as you were mentioning before, like, you know, nutation and counter-nutation is hard to describe, but just think like your tailbone is tucking underneath. That is more external rotation, counter-nutation. So think of like your lower glutes are stiff um, or you're, you're squeezing your butt. And then there's nutation, which is you're like, your, your tailbone's moving away from your sit bone. So that is like bending over, touching your toes, right? So squatting is going to inherently be more of this counter nutation bias or the hip flexion will be biased towards this counter nutation. Whereas deadlifting, touching your toes is going to be more this nutation, this expansion, this relaxation of the 
lower glutes. So, I mean, there, there's tons of ways to improve hip internal rotation. As I mentioned, 60 to 90 degrees of hip flexion leverages the adductor magnus, which is the extensor part, sorry, the, the extensor part of the adductor magnus. So when my hip is flexed, um, it gains leverage for the adductor to become more of a hip extender. So that's why I'm saying like box squats are great starting at like a step up with the, with my foot on top of the box at about 90 degrees, because it's a more of a concentric movement. So it's going to cause me to extend my hip. Um, I could do, I mean, I can even do backwards walking. That's good. I can do crossover step, uh, crossover step ups is one, but crossover sled drags, like lateral, lateral sled drags, because it's getting the frontal plane hip extension, essentially. Um, you get different fibers of the glutes with that. And you get like a glute max. If it's more of a, like a lower glute max, if it's more of this sagittal plane push. So like a glute bridge versus more of this like glute med and, um, the frontal plane fibers of the glute max when I'm doing this lateral pressing. So proof hip extension, I could also do deadlifting. Um, more specifically, you really want to constrain somebody you can do toes elevated ball between the knees, um, Romanian deadlift Mm -hmm. to like mid shins. That's going to be great to open up hip extension. Um, uh, front foot elevate split squat is also going to be big. Like the biggest principle that you have to think about is the lower glute is essentially stretching or lengthening in air quotes. Um, while I'm getting the proximal hamstring to contract. So when I'm going into a front foot elevated split squat, as I go down, I'm creating space in the lower part of the glute. And it's forcing me to hit the end of my range. So I get to 120 degrees of hip flexion faster because my foot is more elevated, right? So that movement there is going to improve tibial interrotation, dorsiflexion, pronation, hip internal rotation, um, hip extension, glute bridges, hip thrusts are going to be big, are going to be big ones. Um, really having the ball between your knees actually helps a lot. So when I adduct, adduct, when I get my adductors involved, squeeze my knees, if I squeeze a foam roller, that's going to open up the back of the hip, allows me to nutate, allows me to extend my hips, open up space. Um, and then after you do that, after you get that initial internal rotation, you do want to start loading that later stance of gait where your heel is starting to come off the Mm -hmm. ground. So I've used exercises like, um, heel floating. So like, I'm like my, like a heel floating lunge. So my toes are only on like a plate or a stepper or something like that. I'm doing a lunge. Like that's, that, that's pretty good. You could also do, uh, your heels elevated. You're in a staggered stance deadlift position and you're, you're kind of slouching over that front foot with the heel elevated. Right. Um, honestly, the other, good thing, the other good one is like a calf raise standing calf raise because you're going to maintain a hip extended position. Um, what I would do though, is I would do it in more of a horizontal angle more than a vertical angle. 
because um, that's going to get that hip extension. And then you can do like wall marches, like those horizontal 45 degree wall marches. Um, yeah, without letting the ankles collapse and, and that. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, like the main principle is I have to nutate or I have to create space lower glute stretchings, the posterior capsule of the hip has to open up. Honestly, even a pigeon stretch can actually improve. Yeah. Hip I've been doing, I've been doing that more. The pigeon stretch. it's, it's, it's funny because yeah. I used to be like, ah, stupid, you know, static stretching is stupid. Now I'm like, ah, yeah, open up the back of the hip. Let's do it. Let's get some more exactly. hip extension ability. But again, it's like the Theragun. It's like the foam roller. It opens mm-hmm. up a window for a little bit of time mm-hmm. and then you got to superimpose it with some type of yeah. dynamic yeah. movement to lock it in. Otherwise, because stretching is just a nervous system, it's just a change yeah, in the mechanical receptor yeah. sensitivity, right? So, you got to do something with it to lock it in. Yeah. Um, so just quickly, um, with the hip extension, the gym, well, I will say too, like, uh, um, the extreme ISO lunge, I really like that because like the front leg, you have some early stance elements in the back leg, you have those late stance elements. So seeing what people's foot and heel and big toe are doing in the back leg, like barefoot, I, I like, I've been obsessed with that recently. <laughs> Just yeah. like, like why, why is your big toe not strong? Like, why can you not, why is your heel like sagging down too much? And I shouldn't just necessarily tell you. I mean, I think I, of course I'm going to tell you not to have it sag down, but I want to figure out why. So I can give you some more movements to help with that type of thing. And, the other thing too, like with that split squat, as you mentioned, like I'll cue the back foot sometimes where I'll cue the met heads of the back foot. So if I'm doing a lunge, my right foot's back, my left foot's forward. I will cue them to press the balls of the big toe on the right foot into the ground. Yeah. Because what they're going to get is they're going to get that proximal hamstring and glute because sometimes people don't have the big toe extension in the back Mm -hmm. leg. And so what they'll do is they'll just turn their back knee out and they'll say, I feel a uh, big quad stretch in my back leg, or I feel knee tension as I go down into a lunge. It's literally just because they can't extend that big toe. So they're swinging their knee out to the side. So I'll cue that back foot sometimes to gain more hip extension on that right side in that case. Yeah. That's, that's I've, I've been that. thinking about that as well. Like instead of like, you know, I think toe strength, we automatically go to toe curls, which I think offers benefit, but it's like with that big toe, like I feel like unless we're lining that thing up, you know, as opposed to little toes, unless we're lining that big toe up and allowing it to feel its job. I, cause like that, that was, we were talking before, like the toe strength tester, like I crushed the big toe strength <laughs> tester, but it's cause I, then I pay attention to what my toes doing. I'm looking at my back leg and legs. I'm like, Oh, this is solid. Like I am set here. But a lot of mm-hmm. athletes don't, they have no clue what their big toe, toe is doing in relation to the ground and that back leg. And I think it's, it's like a simple opportunity. Like all these things are just, these are 1% or so for that could be a 5% for somebody. Like it's a simple opportunity to say, Hey, why don't you put more pressure with your big toe into the ground in that back leg? You know, I mean, boom, there you go. Yeah. Like that's going to help you a lot. I can't, t- I can't tell you how many people I've worked with who have knee pain and they've been told by somebody, Hey, don't do lunges. Don't do split squats. It's going to hurt your knee. And then I'll get them to do the split squat to see what they're talking about. And it bothers their knee. Okay. Then I get them. Then I do exactly what I just said. I cue the med head. They don't feel it anymore because it's literally, they don't have big toe extension. So again, if you want to get big toe extension, you need that metatarsal head to go into the ground. That's what allows the big toe extension to happen. So you're just recreating the mechanics of it. Right. And you're good. You don't have to change the exercise. You just got to modify it a little bit or focus somewhere else a little bit. Yeah. Um, 
the quick so two more things uh, one thing was regarding the hip extension you know I, and i like um even i was just thinking about hip thrust because it's funny because i get on kicks like i was putting hip thrust in like my sprinters programs back at wilmington college 10 years ago people were actually maintaining speed faster late in the race feeling their glutes more i was like yes but then i noticed the more i actually loaded it like it didn't really seem to matter going from 200 to 400 it was almost like it was just there to to rehearse hip extension to give you this pattern of a better hip extension and then you can go use it. And like, yeah, like that's how I approach a lot of this stuff now. Cause I think our mentality is, Oh, take it as far as you can hip thrust 700. Yeah. I'm like, dude, like just open up the range and then go sprint, you know, and that's going to be it. Um, but then, okay. So I was thinking, okay, he'll like hill sprints though. Cause it, the mentorship you talk about, okay. Like some people are at zero hip extension, like them being flat, they have nothing. So they actually have to get the hip into flexion to even start working it. So I was thinking about well, even hill sprints. That is a hip flexion biased sprint and so it it just makes sense that it just exposes you to a more hip extension strategy period uh like if i struggle with it i could just do hill sprints you know and and that would be a remedy yeah it's like if i have zero degrees of hip extension i'm gonna start in the hip flex position so basically uh my glutes are stiff uh my back is arching so i don't have the ability to open up that space that posterior capsule my hip so what can i do to open up the posterior capsule I'm going to flex my hip and I'm going to use a different hip extender, the adductor magnus hip extender that will actually open up the back of the hip when I extend the hip. So I could do hill sprints, I could do crossover, um, or I could do karaoke's up the hill. Like that's also great coming, like doing, doing those lateral or those frontal plane movements are going to be a great way. The other thing you could do is get them to start by walking down the hill is that they walk down the hill that's pushing their shin back. And if I push their shin back, I'm basically bringing their center of mass back so that their glutes don't have to push them as far forward. Hmm. So maybe you say, Hey, okay, before we do the the hill sprints, you guys are going to walk down the hill first. Then once you get to the bottom of the hill, you're going to sprint back up. So that way you've, shift your center of gravity back because they've got to, yeah. when you walk down a hill, you've got to walk with your foot in front of you and your body behind your foot that will open up the space. And then you reverse gears and you're training the hip extension from a hip flex position, as you said. And the other thing I'll note about hip thrusters, I personally, and maybe I'll get shit on this, but I personally don't like hip thrusters from a bench I really don't like them, especially when you put load, because all they're going to do is they're going to hinge at that lower rib cage, TL junction. So what I much prefer is um, you're on your back, like on the ground with your feet on a box of some kind. So it's like a deficit um, hip thrust. But again, if you have your feet on top of something that's higher than your hips, you're then shifting your center of gravity back again into the ground. And that's going to allow you to actually get the full hip extension versus just using your back to do it. it. Like I'll see people who do like a bridge off a stability ball and that can work, but when they do the hamstring curl, they do the bridge, they just feel their back. Hmm. It's, it's because, you know, they're, they're not able to get that true hip extension. So they're just getting the back. So I prefer starting from a more plantar flex position of the ankle of the foot. So the shin is or like the front of the ankle is open and then extending the hip from there. So I give the knee 
or I give the shin some room to move into. Most people are starting with the center of gravity that's over their toes. So it's as if their ankle's already starting in a dorsiflexed position or a flexed position. So I need to start them in more of a plantar flex position first to give them room and then they can access that dorsiflex position. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Th- yeah. That makes sense. And yeah, you know, I think with, yeah, it's, it is interesting how you can think of it from just a pure, I'm going to lengthen, get max length in the muscle perspective versus, okay, how can I avoid? And I do think that's a adaptation that happens when you just go to heavy loads too. Like, I think that's part of the reason I got great results with people using 185 because that doesn't, it's not so much that you're really going to get into that or exacerbate that strategy. And you're just, and <laughs> everything, everything is a means to the end, you know? Um, so it, yeah, very interesting. Oh, yeah, the hill running too. I've had great success. People who have had limited hip extension have had great success with their run speed using that. Sometimes yeah. those people who don't have good hip extension, having them do a squatty run, they struggle with it. It's almost like the hip, the hill runs like the first thing. That's the easiest everyone can do it. Find your exactly. strategy. Squatty run is a little bit, some people just need more movement options to get there and, I'm sure we could go into the nutation to like a half squat nutation. Um, I feel like we're <laughs> maybe round three because I know our time's uh, kind of running out here. I did. I just had one more question for you, Alex. Was the we didn't cover um, like okay, so that the arm, the the anterior delt from uh, running and spring, just from a weight room perspective, like arm curl variations or arm training, shoulder training, anything that someone who might be externally rotated in the shoulders and needs more internal to come across their body. Any just principles there as a, a last parting bit. Yeah. So key exercises. So for me, I'm always thinking I got to get somebody to flex their elbow before I extend the elbow. Cause if I, by flexing the elbow, I'm essentially rotating the humerus back into the socket, if that makes sense. Versus if I'm extending my elbow, it's like I'm pushing the shoulder forward. So if I'm flexing the elbow, it rolls the shoulder back. If I'm extending the elbow, like a tricep extension, it's going to push it forward, right? So picture like a, I'm doing a bicep curl on my right side and simultaneously I'm doing a tricep kickback on my left. What's going to happen is I'm going to turn myself to the side of the bicep curl. So if I want to improve internal rotation, doing arm training. A couple things I can do. I can do front shoulder raises, the front deltoid shoulder raises, because again, that's going to leverage that anterior deltoid. And I'm going to keep it below 90 degrees so I can maximize the internal rotation range of motion. Like if you look at shoulder range of motion from 60 to 120, they call that the subacromial impingement or the, the pain arc, the, the, the impingement arc, that's just because it's the area that my humerus will internally rotate. So if I can't internally rotate because it's staying in an externally rotated position, I'm going to max out on all the external rotation that I have. And I'm going to then start to lift my shoulder and I'm going to reduce that space in the shoulder. So I need to get my arm in a 90 degree position. So I could do bent over pronated grip tricep extensions where, because I'm bent over my arms at 90 degrees, I can do that. Um, I can also do bent over with my elbows in front with like that triangle bar or whatever, tricep extensions. Um, I could do hammer curls. Hammer curls is going to be a great way to gain internal rotation of my shoulder. Um, even lateral 
flies, like lateral shoulder flies can be very good. Um, chest flies are very, very good. Uh, as I said, tricep kickbacks are going to be great. Um, even, um, the bent over, you know, when you bend over and I think it's like overhead tricep extension where you bend over and the, the bars behind you and you're kind of doing extension overhead with the, with that pulley bar or pulley band. Those are great. And then those diamond push-ups, those are awesome. Yeah, I've been doing like more that. of those. Been always on my head when I do push-ups now because again, like I, my arms are flying out to the side. So every time I do push-ups, I'm so aware of like push off the inside edge of my finger, and it's like it's so hard. It's so much harder than when I typically so do hard. push-ups. Even like tricep dips. The tricep dips are gonna be great. And I think the best one to me is I know it's not really like arm training, but kind of is is like side plank position. Yeah, with your palm on the ground. And oh, when okay. I'll get people, yeah. Like arm straight, arm straight, do, palm on the ground, like a straight or, or a bent arm, but have your hand bent, bent arm, hand, heavy hand. So what oh, I'll get it, people to do is, mm-hmm. um, most people, they will try to pronate their arm through their hand. So what I mean is they'll try to like push on the inside part of their hand, but what they'll do is they'll just bring their, they'll, they'll just push their thumb into the ground. Yeah. That's fake interpretation. That's not actually going to change mm-hmm. anything there. So with those people, what I'll get them to do is actually push on the inside part of the wrist. Okay. That is significantly harder. But the reason why I like it so that it's a bent elbow, not a straight elbow, is because when I bend my arm, I'm going to get that, just like the knee, I'm going to get some relative internal rotation of the elbow. So I'm going to get internal rotation of the shoulder internal rotation of the elbow, internal rotation of the wrist. So it's like my ankle is my wrist, my elbow is my knee, and my shoulder is my hip. I need all three of those to be in a position to gain internal rotation for me to gain true shoulder internal rotation. I need the hip, I need the shoulder, I need the elbow, and I need the wrist. If I don't have those three or one of them's missing, I'm going to compensate somehow. Got it. It'd be fake. Yeah, man. Those all like, I mean, I could re-listen and go over this, all this stuff, like probably three times and just keep thinking of ideas. The arm training is just so funny because we just, we just think of arm training, just pure like bro stuff. And it, it could be function. There could be a function to it. I just think that's, um that's also just kind of one of those mind expanding moments where it's like, no, yes, your arm can come across. Even like the bro, like I would do like a three arms curls in front then like three across the side like in the mirror like you can see your arm on the side. i mean it all, it all it's it's just interesting to think about that how that can tie into that gate cycle um before we get out of here do you want to mention um anything about like your mentorship or anything that's um you have um that people can check you out or learn more about what you're doing yeah so i have uh my evolved mentorship which or my biomechanics mentorship which is essentially talking about all the stuff that we talked about today i mean obviously we got more specific into sprinting and with our Q and A's or tutorials, we, we talk about anything, but essentially is kind of building the framework or the foundation for understanding the biomechanics of how the body moves. And with that, being able to assess, identify what kind of compensations people are presenting with, and then what to do about it from a programming perspective. So that's really my main like all in biomechanics program that kind of includes everything from, and it really does. The reason why I really made it was so that I could 
cut all the bullshit for you. Cause like I've taken a bunch of courses or read a bunch of books that didn't have any practicality or logistics behind it. And so this is kind of what I've put together or my model based on information is actually useful. So if you guys want to check that out, it starts July 11th. If not, we run it three, four times a year. So yeah, email me or message me about it if you guys are interested. Awesome. Well, yeah, thank you so much, Alex. I know I, I really enjoyed taking your mentorship and as well as uh, everything we chatted about today. It's just, to me, this is an extra layer uh, that I can put in my awareness to solve problems that uh, maybe I, I wasn't, I was thinking about perhaps more like a muscle centric point of view before that maybe you, you still get the solution, but it's, but to see the joints and how that all fits together, is so valuable. So thanks so much for your time as well as your, your just passion in all things biomechanics and human function. Really appreciate it. Of course. Thanks so much for having me on again, Joel. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. Appreciate y'all being here. If you want to help us out, you can leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, whatever you're listening to. We totally appreciate it. We'll see you back next week with another great guest.